Okay, let me just sort these level out. Can you can you turn your game down just a little? Um, look, um, before we start, I, I need to tell you something. Hmm, ominous. Joshua, what's on your mind? Well, I mean, there's no easy way to say this, but I... I, I, I've been lying to you from the very beginning. From the very beginning? What, of recorded history? Of all time? Since the Big Bang? Well, no, from the beginning of this podcast. I I just, I haven't been honest about my motivations for getting into it. Um, you see, back in, back in 2014, when you first suggested we start a podcast, I, I was actually going to say no. Um, but the next morning, as I was on my way to the train station, I heard a voice calling to me from a shadowy side street. And when I went to see who it was, I found myself confronted by a giant crustacean from the Paleolithic era. It was the Loch Ness Monster. The Loch Ness Monster? The goddamn Loch Ness Monster. And the monster stood above me, looking down with these big red eyes, and it told me that it needed me to join a podcast, one about conspiracy theories. And I didn't want to say no, I was so scared. So instead I asked it, Monster! Monster, I said, how long must I keep doing this podcast? How many episodes do you need? And the monster said to me, I need about 350. 350? 350 episodes. Uh, hold on. Have you been waiting 350 episodes, almost eight years of podcasting, just to have an excuse to work in a reference to an outdated South Park episode from 1999? I have, yes. You know, I, I don't think I've ever been so proud of you in my entire life. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Here in sweltering Auckland, New Zealand, I am Josh Edison, and in Zhuhai, China, it's Associate Professor of Philosophy and probably not a vampire, uh, Dr. M. R. X. Denton. Is the probably not a vampire thing one of the interesting facts you're trying to bring in, one of which is going hmm. to be a lie? Mm, mm. Interesting. But I think, Interesting. Now, Joshua, I think we that, that intro was a pile of lies, but I do want to know, how long have you been thinking about the idea that episode 350 had to be a reference to a South Park episode that I only very vaguely recall? Not that long, to be honest. For, for as long as I've been aware of the fact that episode 350 was coming up. I figured, because we usually, the 50 episodes, we usually do something a little avant-garde, a little unexpected, but I thought, no, no, this 50, 50 episode milestone shall be a throwback to an episode of South Park that's 23 years old. Now, I'm 46 years old, which means that joke is, is, is half my lifetime ago. Also, I'm and pretty sure frankly, that's, I regret nothing. that's number wang. Mm, mm. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about the Loch Ness Monster and possibly other cryptids, um this week. But before we do, uh, we can't ignore the fact that there was no episode last week because the good doctor was hosting a conference. How did that all work out? I wasn't hosting the first international conference on the philosophy of conspiracy theories. I was merely helping Brian Alkeley of Pitzer College, friend of the show, listener of the show, patron of the show, mm. in his hosting duties of the first international conference on conspiracy theories. But I did spend the entire weekend 
sitting at that conference. I did spend a goodly part of the few days before the conference started helping Brian out with the administration of that conference. That is the official line. I was helping Brian Al Keeley out with the organization and running of the first international conference on the philosophy of conspiracy theories. Maybe in a hypothetical patron bonus episode where we talked more about the conference, I might talk about the reason why I was not hosting the conference, but really only helping Brian out. But that is the kind of information that only patrons would ever find out about. Because officially... I was simply Brian's helper, officially. Yes. Fair enough. Credit Yes, okay. Well, but it went well. It went well is the point, I think. It did. It did. Now, the other thing we should note, so we have a new patron, and we have a new patron who would normally get name-checked in the intro to an episode. But because of Josh's obsession with a 23-year-old episode of South Park that virtually no one remembers, Josh wrote a script which didn't really allow us to slide the patron in. And we do like to slide our patrons in. We do. And we like to slide them out. I mean, we, we like to slide with our patrons a lot. So with next week, next movies. week, the new, the new patron will, of course, be slid in. Now, of course, what normally happens when we have a backlog is that then someone else decides to donate to the podcast and we have to find a, find a way of working things around it. So, you know, this is the perfect time if you're thinking about becoming a patron of the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy to get that $3 a month patronage in because it will really screw with our schedule. And we know how you like to screw with our schedules. That's what makes our patrons so great. They're always mm. screwing with us. So if you like us enough to want to give us money, but hate us enough that you want to make our scheduling difficult... The sweet spot. ...become a patron. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll teach us to be whatever. I don't even know. I thought, thought I was going somewhere with that, and it just turned out I wasn't. So, should we just go into the episode then? I, I should say... I have a feeling this is going to be a short episode purely because it's that period of Auckland summer when the humidity is sort of hovering around 90% and I'm in a small room with all the windows shut so there isn't too much room outside. So I think we better too much keep room this outside. relatively brief. I mean, it's, too, too much noise outside. You've got a room inside We've been a room. recording for 11 minutes and already I can barely get an English sentence out of my head. So Now, I also want to point uh, out that this just shows you how weak Josh as a physical specimen is. Because, of course, when I was broadcasting from Zhuhai in the middle of last year, in an office where I turned the air conditioning off, because I didn't want any air conditioning noise interrupting the, the sound quality of the podcast. It was 36 degrees outside, and I was so... So Josh complaining about, oh, but we've got... What was the, got, what was the mid- humidity? That's, that's, the, that's what matters. Well, still somewhere between 60 to 70%. Oh, for sure, 60 to 70. I wiped my nose with 60 to 70%. Anyway, uh, having just said we're going to keep this episode short, we've now been rabbiting on about stuff that has oh, no, nothing I, to do with the I just want you to suffer in the high humidity oh, and heat of Fair Auckland. Enough. So the more that I vamp around the fact that you are a weak specimen of a human being means the more uncomfortable both psychologically and physically you become. And because I'm a trained public speaker and thus can actually just keep talking for long periods of time, I could in fact keep this vamping up for a good 
40, 45 minutes before I even and let you on get another a continent word where in. I can't reach over and slap you. Well, yes. precisely. But because I am also not a cruel person at heart, I'm going to now say, let us slide into a chime and then slide out of the Loch Ness Monster. Well, there we go. Your benevolence astounds. So, yes, for no reason other than an ancient pop culture reference, we're going to talk about the Loch Ness Monster and other cryptids and, and, and the field of cryptozoology in general, I guess. Now, I, I had the first one of the first places I looked just for an overview was, was good old Wikipedia. And I, I couldn't help but notice that on the Wikipedia page for cryptozoology, right near the start, it says there's a broad consensus among academics that cryptozoology is a pseudoscience. And it has a long list of references of various people saying that cryptozoology is a pseudoscience. And right near the top of that list was one Conspiracy Theories A Primer by Mr. Joseph Usinski, 2020. So how about that? Philosophers are right. Well, actually, he's not a philosopher, is he? He's a political scientist. And I have to say, as someone... As someone who does the philosophy of science, I actually don't think there's a broad consensus among academics that cryptozoology is a pseudoscience because, like chiropractic, there are kind of two forms of cryptozoology. So there are chiropractors out there who believe in theories of subluxations and the idea that a well-aligned spine allows your chakras to move up and down, blah, 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 blah. And then there are the chiropractors who go, yeah, we're just kind of into spinal manipulation in the way that someone who does a kind of physical manipulation of the body does to remove discomfort. We don't believe in all that supernatural jazz. I don't know why the jazz is supernatural. No one ever talks about, you know, that supernatural goth opera. But we don't believe in all the supernatural stuff. We simply believe that uh, that fixing your spine will make you feel better about the world. So they're basically just doing physical manipulation. In the same respect, there there are serious biologists out there who engage, sorry, serious zoologists out there who engage, well, I mean, zoologists and biologists are two of a kind. I, I can just feel mm. the anger of a certain listener as I as I conflate zoology and bo- biology, but they're exactly they literally the same. identical. They are they're exactly precisely the same the, science. The position of the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, and thus anyone who is a patron of the show is to accept that zoology and biology are exactly the same science. And if one's pseudoscientific, the other is as well. But there are zoologists out there who do engage in the study of rumored animals which is what cryptozoology is and they engage in rigorous study looking at folkloric tales and then comparing those tales to existing species looking at areas of the world where there hasn't actually been much zoological capture over time and then going well maybe some of these stories which usually always come from the fringe of cultures are referring to things that we haven't yet catalogued so there are serious cryptozoologists out there like Carl Zimmer and the like who are serious zoologists who take cryptozoology seriously. I mean, it would be a bit like saying that up until the last 10 years or so, people would treat this academic study of conspiracy theories as fringe and weird. Okay, so yeah, sure, some people in what you might take to be the mainstream rump of an academic discipline will poo-poo particular sub-disciplines, but that doesn't actually make them unworthy of academic investigation. It just tells you something about the prejudice 
of the people who make up the rump of a profession. And I've used the word rump now twice, and I quite like Ooh. it. Rump. Ooh. So I'm no, I, but I don't think that cryptozoology is necessarily a pseudoscience. I think it's one of those things where there are certainly pseudoscientific practitioners of cryptozoology, but you find, you find the same thing in biology, physics, and chemistry as well. People who come up with weird theories without the right background. But that doesn't mean we then go, oh, looking into phenomena X is pseudoscientific. You just go, well, look, some of the people who engage in looking into phenomena X are pseudoscientists. And of course, yes, it has to be said that there are numerous cases of um, animals, or f for instance, animals that were thought to have been extinct turning up alive, and um, animals being discovered all the time. I, I don't know what the numbers are on the uh, the, the ideas for the, the numbers of species of the world that we've actually catalogued. Um, well, I, I think, know I think it's it things like insects, be, yeah, in, probably. Yeah, insects, I think one of the numbers being bandied about a few years ago is we've probably catalogued about 20% of the insect mm. species around the world to the point where you can literally go into your backyard and potentially discover a new kind of insect which doesn't appear in the mm. textbooks because there are just so many of them. But I think when it comes to off the sorts of things that people call cryptids, they're usually things that are big enough that it would be hard to miss them. And often, sort of, we could maybe draw an analogy with Brian's um, mature, unwarranted conspiracy theories. The, the, the idea that these supposed animals have been, people have been talking about them for long enough that you would expect them to have found them by now, and yet they haven't, and yet people still continue to talk about them. But, um, of course, but before, we, we can't go any further um, without talking about your, your personal connection to the world of cryptids. Uh, because, or at least my personal uh, rejection from the world of well, cryptozoology. Yes. Now, uh, local journalist and friend of the show, David Ferrier, used to have a podcast with comedian and actor Rhys Darby, who's, who's a And Buttons. Lately's... Don't forget Buttons. Well, you can't forget Buttons. Who was Buttons? It was the third person on right. the radio show. And I should okay. be pointed out, the cryptid factor, the show we're talking about, still mm. does exist, but it seems to be sans David these days. Yeah, is Reese Darby still doing it? Yes, yes, Reese da Darby and Butter. It's what we might call a very occasional podcast. I think yes. they produced exactly one episode last year. Yes, because Reese Darby's off being famous in Hollywood these days. He's, Which I he's don't understand, but that's another matter entirely. Yeah, um, fly to the Concords, I think. It was off the back of that, but anyway. So, so yes, before it was a podcast, though, it was a regular show on the um, Auckland University student radio station BFM. Now, did you actually take? Were you were you a cast member of it at all, or were you just sort of proposed and then cruelly cast aside before? I was in two episodes. Anything? So basically, after Jose Barbosa left BFM to go off to take over the world of visual me 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 media, the Cryptid Factor kind of came in as the replacement show in that time slot, and I was always doing a fifteen minutes every two weeks appearance on. Jose's show. So the idea was I'd continue doing that about conspiracy theories. I did two sessions of The Cryptid Factor and then David invited me out for coffee one day and said, oh, by the way, we're ditching your se segment, No Hard Feelings. Hmm. 
Well, there we go. So poss- possibly this is some sort of a sign that um, cryptid discussion and conspiracy theories should never be mixed, and possibly we're tempting the fates by doing this episode, but too late now, I guess. We've, we've started, so we'll finish. Um, now, of course, David Ferrier, who you probably better know for Dark Tourist and the Tickled documentary and so on, uh, before all of well, that, I, he was... He I, was... I better know him from from accidentally joining in a protest march in Prague, because mm, that was mm, something yes. we did once, mm. whilst trying to find um, sushi. Very mm, confusing. But in the middle of the 2000s, he actually went off to Mongolia to research a documentary about the Mongolian death worm, a popular cryptid. Now, when I was looking about it now, all I could see was news articles saying journalist David Ferrier has gone off to film a documentary or journalist David Ferrier has just got back from filming stuff for his documentary, but I haven't, didn't see anything about the documentary actually being released. So I'm not sure. Are you aware if he, if he ever actually made that documentary? So I know he went to Mongolia to film material mm. for it and he did Very filming did. and interviews there. As you say, no documentary has ever been released. I've actually tried to ask David in the past about past projects and future projects, and his answer is, look, this is not personal, but I don't talk about stuff which I'm working on to other people until such time it's ready to release, because I find it kind of gets in the way of the creative process. Something which I do understand. Sometimes jumping the gun on describing a project to someone for certain creatives, kind of robs them of the impetus to then go off and do that particular thing. Yeah, I don't know. So David's very private about the the work that he does. I get the impression that the Mongolian death worm thing just didn't really produce enough content to justify actually going into the post-production phase of producing a film out of the footage that was taken. That is the impression I get. Yeah, I saw one interview with David where he said that the impression he got having done his filming was that he thinks the Mongolian death worm is a thing that used to exist, but that it's probably extinct now. And he reckoned that the sightings of it seemed to dry up around the 1950s. So that How was his long ago was impression. that interview out of curiosity? Um, I, I, don't, I don't have the link now, but it would have been sort of late 2000s, probably. 2009 I or maybe a little later. I wonder what his view on it now is given the the kind of stuff he publishes on webworm Mm. i take it that he's he's now in the highly skeptical camp when it comes to a lot of the stuff that he used to have a dalliance with and so i do wonder whether now he would go yeah maybe i was actually a little bit foolish even then to think that it had existed i don't know once again it's very hard Mm. to talk to david about these things because things which are technically active projects or things that could be resuscitated are things that he's not particularly inclined to talk about for obvious creative reasons Mm. but anyway we're not here to talk about david ferry a lovely human being though here's we're here to talk about cryptids um, and the, do you do you have a favourite? I suppose I should ask right at the start. Is there anything that you've that ever captured your imagination? Well, I mean, I've always been ever so slightly interested by the alien big cats in the South Island mm. of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Not because I think they're likely to exist, but for the sheer fact that they are kind of the local cryptid that gets talked about a lot, and also the extinct otter that we had back home, which has not existed for a long time. 
and yet there are still stories about people seeing it in the bush. So we've got a few favorites when it comes to local cryptids back home in Aotearoa. I've always had, always had a little bit of a soft spot for the Yeti, but that's mostly because of their role in Doctor Who. Oh, yeah, I mean, I always actually quite liked Nessie. I think just because when I was a boy, you'd get books about mysterious things and, and Nessie would always be involved and they'd have lovely pictures of these imaginary uh, ideas of what a Nessie might look like and all the mysterious photographs and so on. Um, and, of course, because I always used to watch Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, which as a child, the, the intro to that scared the shit out of me quite reliably. Yes, I'm also, I, it, I it, it did to me, but creepy. nothing beats Unsolved Mysteries for the creepiest intro. Yeah, I don't know, just the, the music. And well, the other thing that always also got me was the way he, every episode he was always introduced, and I had to write this down so I got it right, that it introduced him every time. They, they had the very, very well-spoken British narrator could say, Arthur C. Clarke, author of 2001, an inventor of the communication satellite, now in retreat in Sri Lanka after a lifetime of science, space, and writing, he ponders the riddles of this and other worlds. But um, Nessie was in the very first episode of, uh, of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious so, World. Yeah, on retreat in Sri Lanka? On or hiding in out in, in Sri Lanka because of things he'd possibly done back in the UK, which... Yes, he had his controversies, did he did indeed. Mm. But anyway, I mean, so you, you've got your classics, the, the the big names, your Loch Ness Monster, your Bigfoots and your Yetis, your sa- and then there's your always a variety Sasquatches. of... Your Sasquatches. Your yep, various, various missing links, sort of mysterious hominid ones. You've got your... Well, obviously, when it is, uh, Nessie is, is hardly unique in terms of supposed big lake monsters. There's lakes all over the world where people insist there's a, a giant monster living inside it you've got um uh monsters sort of dinosaur like monsters that people think you know maybe maybe dino- there are there are still some living dinosaurs around um the one i was introduced to was mokeli mbembe the one that supposedly lives in africa basically because uh, i saw as a child saw the 1985 movie baby secret of the lost legend i had very William... vague memories of that mm. very vague memories i think it's one of those films that even as a child in the mid 80s i thought the special effects do not look particularly good yes they had a nice little uh, i forget the exact details of the plot but there's there are there are a couple of adult brontosauruses basically i can't remember if the adults die or something but they they get left with the baby one and they have to look after that. It's William Catt, the greatest American hero himself. Sean Young and Patrick McGowan was the bad guy. Of course, at the age of like nine years old or whoever I was, I had no idea who Patrick McGowan was. So that, that meant nothing to me. But but now... Da-da-da! Da-da-da! Um, the the, the favourite name one, I guess, has to be the Chubacabra, the Mexican goat sucker, which I think... I think I first heard about because of the X Files episode. Oh, see, I knew so about it from being an avid reader of the Fortean Times. Oh, you and your there was a times, period yes. of time in the Fortean Times that almost every month there was a new theory to explain what the Mexican goat sucker actually was, from from pervert to a sneaking into fields in the middle of the night and slicing open goats to drink their blood and their milk at the same time, to weird dog attacks, to cryptids. The Chupacapra ended up having a variety of different explanations. Because it's a relatively recent one, isn't it? People have been talking about Nessie... 
in, in her current format since the early 1900s, but there have been rumours of lake monsters around there for centuries. But the Chupacabra kind of showed up in the 1990s, didn't it? I don't and there are some theories which indicate that the initial stories about it were largely hoaxes or farmers making up excuses for dog mutilations of their about to say their cattle or crops. Is that the right way to refer to a herd of goats? Not really cattle per se, are no. they? No. But so yeah, so there was a theory going around that look, the initial Chupacapra stories, because the the term, even though people go, oh, it's an old, old name, because it's really not. It's a it's a modern coinage. May well have been something where someone made up a story and then other people either continued that fiction or because they believed that it referred to an ancient creature, started finding evidence of it in other attacks of herds of... But say herds of geese. I'm not aware Ooh. of Chupacabra attacking geese, but I just went... Couldn't put past them, those herd of, herd of geese. Mm, yes, I have. Uh, chupacabra, so cabra is goat, which means chupa is to do with sucking or something. Which when I realised that, I realised oh, so that's why chopper chops, the lollipops are called chopper chops because it's so they're Spanish sucker suckers, suck su- suckers. Uh, did you know Salvador Dali designed the chopper chops logo? I mean, I do now because I've been reading the notes for today's well, yeah. episode. But please uh, mm. expound no, to our saying. listeners. Salvador the... Dali designed the chopper chops logo. Not a not a melting clock. Not a bizarre. Uh, surrealist imagery at all to be seen. He just and of course he, he did advertising work and marketing work as well. If we're if we're doing Salvador Dali, our usual butchering of a Beatles song, Salvador Dali. He didn't chop off his ear. That was Van Gogh. That Salvador Dali. Yes. Anyway, that may have got a little out of hand, but. I do love a good, I do love a good oh, no, Salvador no, Dali no, fact. No, just to peel the curtain away, because our curtains are stuck to the, to mm. the walls because oh, of God, various are. issues. Um, mm. Josh actually has in the notes here, this discretion may be getting out of hand. So well, I did, because I, as I started he putting down those notes, I thought, well, I, I, I acknowledge that I've gone too far, but I want to put that in there. So I'll just, I'll just keep the, I'll just be honest with myself and you. And you, listener. Um, but what else have we got? The Jersey Devil, and there's a few... Hey, like, I'm walking of, here! Yeah, that's, that's New Jersey, but anyway. Yeah, the, the weird, weird sort of chimeric sort of creatures. I mean, and, and there's a long history of people sort of assembling weird... Uh, your jackalopes and what's the the European one, the vulpertinger or something, where you sort of get a a rabbit and then put some bird wings on it and some funny antlers on the top and say, hey, look, this is this weird animal I caught. Um, or the what was the what was the Fiji mermaid, the one that was a monkey sewed to a fish? Oh, the popular attraction in sideshows, mm. which was also one of the attractions that was in the original Ripley's. It was, Believe it or yes. not, exhibits? Yeah. And um, sometimes you get ones like the Mothman. The Mothman that they sort of somehow ended up getting sort of a supernatural aspect bolted onto it. I think there were these sightings of a creature that looked, uh, from the sounds of things, a lot like a large owl, but definitely wasn't a large owl. 
according to the people who saw it. And then there was that bridge disaster, and for some reason people and thought that the Mothman was a was a, a warning or something like that. And then they made a movie about it with Richard Gere. Now, I are you aware that the book The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, which is the kind of the story of the bridge mm. disaster... Which I assume the, the movie, yeah, movie is based and on. And the premonitions around it of The Mothman is also, by and large, the origin of The Men in Black. I did not know that, no. Because in The Mothman Prophecies, Keel talks about how numerous witnesses or people who saw Mothman were visited by strange men wearing black or grey suits who had come to the house, claim they were members of some nondescript government department, and then ask people questions about the event, was also acting really weirdly. So there's one example he uses of two men in black arriving to interview a little old lady, and she has some jello out on a plate. And the ubiquity of jello in Amer- in America and American culture cannot be overstated. So when one of the men in black points to the gelatinous substance going, what is that? The little old lady's interest is piqued, and she goes, oh, do you want some? And then he starts manipulating and playing with it as if he doesn't realize it's a foodstuff. And so you get not only the men in black story, but also the idea that the men in black are otherworldly, in part because John Keel was very into the kind of pan-dimensional or demonic notion of cryptids. They weren't real physical entities, they were projections from other realities or worlds, and the men in black were some kind of similar intrusion into our world from another. Interesting book, quite hard to read because there isn't any central narrative to it, but nonetheless very interesting, and I actually quite like the film. I think the Richard Gere film is quite a nice, let's do the X-Files, but in a very, very different way. Hmm. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll check it out. Never seen it, though. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, because it, um, there, there is a bit of crossover sometimes between your um, cryptozoologists and your ufologists. There'll sort of be a, a, an otherworldly connection in some in some cases to some cryptids, um, but not universally. Um, now, if we were to look more locally, uh, I think you've touched on both of the kinds of cryptids that tend to get mentioned in New Zealand, those supposed big cats that live somewhere down south that people people insist they saw you know not a not a big cat but a, but but a big cat um usually a panther of some sort um that people insist are roaming the wilds uh, somewhere and country. actually so and that's where we get back into cryptozoology may not be a pseudoscience mm. because you get Alien big cat sightings in the South Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And by alien, hasn't, you yeah. mean they shouldn't be there, not there from yeah. outer space. Mm. Well, I mean, they might be from outer space, but well, they definitely shouldn't be there. And there mm. isn't much of a history of the ownership of big cats like panthers, lions, tigers, and the like back home. But when you start looking at alien big cat sightings in Australia and the UK, where they also occur... There's a much bigger history of privately owned menageries in which where the in situations where the government has shut these things down either due to animal cruelty or 
saying actually you're not you're not allowed to own a private sanctuary of large animals of this kind. And the animals kind of just disappearing with the theory being that often the keepers just release them in into the wild and cryptozoologists who stu- who study these things are going well look we're not saying there are breeding populations of these creatures out there what we're saying is that they may well have been private ownership of these animals where the private ownership was terminated, but no one actually tracked what happened to the animals in question. And so we're investigating the possibility that these animals are out there with there being an interesting social story as to how they got there. And that does seem to be a legitimate area of inquiry, because whilst the alien big cat sightings in the South Island don't really make much sense given what we know about animal ownership in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In Australia and the UK, it is relatively plausible to think these are escaped animals from private zoos. Mm. I mean, certainly there's the case of Pablo Escobar's hippos, who, where was he, Bolivia? He was, yes. Mm. Uh, And I believe there's still a problem to this day. Oh, they're a big problem, apparently, because, yeah, supposedly the South American climate, when when his hippos escaped into the wild after he went down, uh, the South American climate turns out to be great for hippos. They love it there. Um, And there was, I don't know if there was a single breeding pair or more, but there was enough that they, they were able to breed. And hippos being known for being one of the most territorial and violent animals around. Um, and it's very hard to kill. Very hard to kill. And so, so not only are they difficult to kill, but also apparently there's a little bit of sort of public sympathy because hippos, they're sort of round and, and bouncy and a little bit cute if you don't notice the gigantic teeth. So there's, I think there's a little bit of popular pressure against culling them as well. But yeah, it sounds like they are actually becoming a genuine problem over there. Um, but so as, as well as that, we also have... Um, Every now and then you'll have people claiming to have sighted uh, native animals that are thought to be extinct. Uh, every now and then you'll get people insisting that they saw a moa, uh, the, the largest the flightless bird, probably the large, must have been the largest bird ever. I can't imagine, I can't think of anything else. So, and I've now forgotten the actual name, but the Haast Eagle, I think, was larger than the moa. Because remember, the Haast Eagle predated well, it's, 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 on moa. Yeah, it's wingspan. Yeah, I don't know, but it's certainly I mean, it the could, biggest flightless could, bird in the world. It could pick. It could pick moa pick up. up. Yeah. No, no, the the, the oh, house eagle sheep. would actually pick up. Yeah, I mean mm. there were there were there were there no were sheep, sheep at the, at the point time, where you know, it would pick moa yeah. up, fly them to great heights, and then drop them on the ground to kill them and then eat. Mm. This was a giant. This is the biggest eagle the, the world biggest, has ever yeah. seen. In terms of because New Zealand uh, had. No native mammals, with the exception of bats and dolphins, and that uh, otter. Birds, I, did, I did mention that that, oh, otter, the otter. that yeah, the, the otter the did pesky otter. But basically, birds filled all of the evolutionary niches that would that you'd often see in other places. And the harst eagle was basically New Zealand's lion, um, but but a bird. But anyway, some people claim to have seen moa. Um, if you've seen the film Hunt for the Wilder People, that has as a plot point while the two main characters are going through the bush, they see uh, a very distinctive extinct native bird, the huia. Um, so you get things like that, but there hasn't been really, there is not, as far as I'm aware, a sort of, any sort of oral tradition within Maori culture of, of these uh, supernatural creatures that are thought to still exist today in the, in the way that people talk about a, a Loch Ness monster 
or a Makeli Mbimbi. Well, I mean, there is the there is the, the interesting discussion of... about the Tanifa, but of course, the Tanifa ends up being a. Actually, I'm I'm looking up Hast Eagle here to get the the actual and the Wikipedia page as per usual, which is actually really ah Poake. There we go, Poake. Yeah, the Wikipedia page really should actually go with that first, but it's actually several lines down. So yeah, the Tanifa, which are which gets us into an interesting interesting thing about Ta'au Ma Ma Maori, the Maori worldview. And I should preface this with I am not I am not Maori. It doesn't matter how many Maori friends or Maori partners I have, I cannot in any way talk about things with any degree of cultural fluency here. But the Tanifa are often taken by Pakia as being a Maori mythological creature, uh, a kind of monster that exists in river bends or or bad parts of the land that people shouldn't go to. It's not entirely clear that people think Tanifa literally exists. So Josh is right. There's mm. often no stories told. They're kind of a, a figurative creature or explanatory thing. But there is a way of talking about things in Ta'au Māori where they're kind of both. They are, they are a figurative way of explaining a phenomena within the landscape, but that doesn't mean they're not real. They're just not real in the same way that you or I are. Probably the more interesting thing within the Altura concept is the Patuparehe, the <laughs> the fairy people of Maori because culture. Because they would get the uh, get what they get the, uh, the the Celtic New Zealand hypothesis people. In yes, the because the the fae folk are usually characterised as being light skinned with blonde hair and blue eyes, which the Celtic New Zealand hypothesis proponents say, well, that sounds an awful lot like Europeans. And anthropologists, sociologists, and philosophers will go, no, that sounds a lot like albinos. And albinoism is quite striking in a people who are used to dark hair, dark skin, and dark eyes. And so there is a kind of history in a lot of different cultures of albinos being treated as being different from the norm. And it's understandable you might even create a kind of folkloric category for people who, and this is a terrible way to talk about albinos, because they are are a horribly predated upon part of Mm. the human species in a lot of cultures. But there's a way of explaining away why you might characterize fae folk as having these kind of European char- characteristics without actually having to talk about the Europeans having got here first. Mm. Just dun- yeah, so- dancing around some racism and a- ableism there. Mm. But yes, yeah, so I mean, when it comes down to it, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, cryptids worldwide, uh, some of them are hoaxes. I think we'll talk about one of the most famous hoaxes shortly. Um, a lot of them do just seem to be mistaken animal sightings or stories about animals that may have existed but but no longer did so um while uh, for instance had I, I think there were still some more extent when european settlers arrived weren't there but certainly no, 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 no. i mean so 
Moa were around when the Maori first arrived in Aotearoa, yeah. New Zealand. They go extinct around about 100 to 200 years after the arrival of the Maori due to the rise of agriculture in mm. Aotearoa, New, Ze- New Zealand. Moa basically are uh, a consequence of that and also being hunted down. So mm. by the time Europeans arrived, there are definitely yeah. none around. But and indeed, there extent. is a theory about... Because the word moa in most Polynesian languages just refers to chickens, which are the most common bird you'll find for eating purposes. And there's a theory going around that moa had kind of disappeared from even Maori oral culture, although that's probably not true, because there are stories about Polaki, and they they disappear well before the Moa do. But there's a theory go- going around that when Europeans went, these big bones over here, what do they refer to? Oh, they, they look like bird bones. What's a word that we have for birds we don't currently use? Oh, Moa is a word that is in our language that refers to birds that we don't have. So that's probably a Moa. Mm. As a but theory. Yes, no, the, mm. But, uh, yeah, so they, they were, may not have been extant, but as you say, there was enough physical evidence that we, we had proof that these creatures existed. If, if the bones didn't exist, though, and you heard people, and you sort of, you know, heard people telling stories about these, you know, birds that were, were you know, much taller than a human being, um, you might think it's just some weird story when in fact it would be simply stories of something that no longer existed anymore. And that does seem to be the case, well, it's not necessarily the case here, it does seem to be the case in other places. So for instance, uh, with Mokili Mbembe, the creature which, going by some descriptions, make it sound like uh, a long-necked sort of brontosaurus sort of creature. Other ones, other other descriptions talk about rather than having a long neck on the front of its body, something talk about having a long horn sticking up from the front of its body. And indeed, apparently, some uh, tribes local to the area where Makale Mulimbi was supposed to exist, having been shown um, a, 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 a book with lots of um, African animals on it, identified a rhinoceros as, oh, yep, that's that's it. That's the one we we're talking about. And rhinoceroses used to exist in that area, but had been extinct there for a long time. Um, similarly, with the Mongolian deathworm, there are stories of people talking to um, locals who claim to have seen them and showing them pictures of various snakes and having them point at a, a, a sand boa and say, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's that's... What we are—that's uh, what we are talking about when we use the words that they use to describe this creature that we talk about as a Mongolian death worm, because it makes for a better title for a movie. Although not a better movie, from what I understand, I haven't actually seen Mongolian death worms, the the monster movie, but um, doesn't sound great. Um, and similarly with Nessie. Uh, some people have thought that the various sightings, which you know tend to be not always have things in common. Sometimes it's shapes under the water. Sometimes it's creatures walking around. Sometimes it's weird ripples and so on. But they think there could be a variety of people seeing otters, people seeing large eels, or or large fish as well. Uh, because there is a river that connects Loch Ness to the sea. I'm not sure. Yes, but it's, it's, an, it's possible an for sea. underground I think it flows the river. Other way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's also very, very deep mm. underground. Yeah, so maybe not. But, but um, um, which brings us 
back again to your to your alien cats because while as you say in other countries there is uh, a lot more plausibility of of being a, an escaped creature a lot of the time the explanation that people offer for these these supposed big cats um seen in New Zealand that they're not a big cat they are simply a big cat a big house cat which when seen at a distance with no across a field where there isn't um, enough detail to give you a proper perspective your eye basically plays tricks on you and you end up perceiving it as being larger than it actually is and that's been a explanation in some cases of for how a person could mistake an otter for the Loch Ness Monster I mean it's a creature with a, a long body and sort of a, a long longish neck and a long tail and what have you and um, other things like eels and there are some relatively large fish I think that can be found around there which if you just saw a bit of one gliding under the water you never know um, so yeah I mean there are there are there are plenty of explanations but there are I would say even more uh, cryptids that people believe in and but, cryptids um, in this case go back a long way so oh, yes. when people talk about the histories written by Herodotus where we get stories like centaurs and the like people are going I mean Herodotus he's not the most reliable of historians but he often was drawing on reports by people coming in from overseas he just wasn't very good at kind of fact checking the claims they made and people are going yeah a lot of the Cases of Herodotus describing an unusual species like a centaur is probably Herodotus getting a very garbled description of something very strange someone saw, like a person riding bareback on a horse, which sounds quite quite lewd, but bare, bareback riding on horses mm -hmm. sometimes it just means a person not using a saddle and then going, how do we kind of reconcile the strange behavior here? And so you get the centaur, or some people have claimed that giraffes are the source mm. of centaur stories, because at a distance, it looks like the bo body of a horse with a really weird person standing on top of it. It actually does get us into the interesting discussion about centaurs in fiction, because people like to point out that centaurs are always described as being tall in fiction, as if you've got, you know, they've got the four legs of a horse, and then they've got a kind of a human on top. But as people point out, I mean, the thing about a horse is that the hind legs are the equivalent of a human's legs, and the forelegs are basically the arms. So really, centaurs should just be a horse with a human's head, the same height as a human. So either, if you want to maintain that centaurs have this kind of you know, this human torso thing, then we should downgrade the horse bit to kind of like a pony size, which when you get these delightful tiny centaurs cantering around the place. Or if you're going to go for horse size, you just go for a horse and you replace the head with a human head, which is also delightful and weird, and certainly not the way that fantasy depictions have of these of these buff, muscular men and lithe, strong women that for some reason also have an additional set of legs, along with mm. their arms. You know who else has six limbs? Dragons. So what I'm saying, proposing right. to you why, today... Why do they have six centers. limbs? Well, they have, dragons have four legs plus wings, and wings are arms. Good like point, well made. Good arms. point, well made. So what I'm saying well, now that is that centaurs that, that, and dragons that, that, are literally the same actually, thing. Just actually, as actually, biologists actually, and zoologists are the same actually, thing. Actually, well actually... 
sometimes dragons have their arms on their wing. Well, those are wyverns. Oh, you've you've got an answer for everything. I yeah, do. This is the point. Time. If, if if we had a if this was a video episode, you should be you know just slowly raising up a monster manual from D and D at mm. this point, and then putting it. Down. Those are wyverns. I think you'll find. <laughs> yes. Now, anyway. Um, I think we're drawing to a close because we're aiming towards a regular length episode anyway, and I am at least 60% sweat by body weight now. Um, So I thought we should finish off because we haven't really talked about conspiracy theories a lot so far. Um, But one of the best conspiracy theories when it comes to cryptids is, of course, the story of the surgeon's photo. The surgeon's photo? If you've ever seen uh, uh, anything about the Loch Ness Monster, you probably know which photo I'm meaning. It's the one, uh, the black and white photo showing the silhouette of what appears to be a long-necked creature and a bit of its back sticking up out of the waters of Loch Ness. Um, Probably the most famous Nessie photo that there is. Um which we now know was a hoax and the result of a conspiracy between some of the most Britishly named Britons in all of Britain. Oh, can I, uh, can I, can oh, I give, do. can I please give the name? So yes. let me introduce you to our cartel of British conspirators. Our first one is Marmaduke Withall or Withall. I'm actually not quite sure how the pronunciation of Withall. So uh, Christian Sperling, Christian Sperling, Mm-hmm. Ian Withall and Maurice or Morris Chambers. I've, or I've, Sean I've, Bear. I'm heard. I heard here he likes it both ways. Mm. So yes, uh, interesting. Not 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 one of these people is a surgeon. Um, but apparently, when the photo was first published, it was credited as coming from uh, Mr. Robert Kenneth Wilson, uh, who was a local doctor. I'm not sure if that was. Uh, I'm not sure if that was a mix-up or if they were, if it was them trying to throw people off the scent or something. But so the the surgeon's photo was a hoax. It's kind of a revenge hoax. It's an interesting one because uh, Marmaduke Wetherill, Wetherill the Elder, was an actor, a filmmaker, a big game hunter, and also an employee Sorry, of that, the Daily I mean, Mail. There's a, there's a song there. I'm an actor. Oh yes, a cheater, a big game hunter. Nobody calls him Maurice. Oh, and there's a Maurice as well. Maybe <laughs> I know. That about all four yeah. of them. Yeah. I know. Um, no, so so uh, Mr. Mr. Witherell, Witherell the Elder, um, was, worked for the Daily Mail and brought them um, supposed evidence of the Loch Ness Monster when he found these uh, mysterious footprints around the shores of Loch Ness. Um, and so he came to the Daily Mail with his with his his exclusive proof of the Loch Ness monster. Unfortunately, when the casts of these footprints that he'd made were analysed, they were found to be quite clearly the footprints of a hippopotamus. And it was found that um, some wacky prankster who had a hippopotamus umbrella stand because that was one a of those Victorian lovely things thing. that people did back yeah. then, yeah, making making furniture out of animal parts. Somebody had a hippopotamus foot umbrella stand, and for a bit of a laugh, had walked around the shores of Loch Ness, Loch Ness making these these large footprints. Um, so he was so the Daily Mail ended up uh, rubbishing him and 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 making him look like an idiot when it turned out he. Had been hoaxed so he thought he'd he'd hoaxed them right back and uh come up with what ended up being one of the most famous photos of supposedly the Loch Ness monster ever so they we now know that it was a toy submarine 
with um, a, a head and neck uh, made out of wood putty stuck to the top of it that they floated out into the lock and photographed. Um, I think so Mr. Marmaduke, Marmaduke Wetherill sort of was the brains of the operation. I think his son Ian Wetherill brought the... I think I think he supplied the putty and Christian Sperling supplied the submarine or something. I don't actually know what Mr. Chambers did, but he was there. So you well, I mean, it says that. here he was an insurance agent. He was so an insurance I'm, agent. I'm yeah. sure he was doing some kind of claims adjusting Probably, at the time. Yeah, had insured the toy submarine or something. Uh, so they took this photograph. It was published in the Mail in 1934, and a large deal was made of it. Um, intri- most of the time, the photograph is shown cropped in quite close. Um, if you see the full photograph, where you can actually see the the shore of Loch Ness, um, it does look a little less spectacular. With with that amount of perspective, the creature does look quite a bit smaller. But um, nevertheless, it, it stayed there. People, I mean, first of all, back then, although photo manipulation was possible it wasn't i mean stalin was really keen on it Mm, yeah he was really keen on it and fake photographs i mean how old were the the the, those fairy photographs the The um, cottingham yeah i mean that's 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 slightly earlier yeah but i mean that was that was sort of um paper models made to look real but but basically photographic evidence was held in much higher regard than it is these days of course where anyone if they choose not to be even a photograph can just cry photoshop um but back then it was you know that was a photograph was as close to cast iron proof as you could get but um yeah people obviously there were always skeptics apparently in the 70s there was a bit of a uh, a, a bit of noise around the fact that they thought it was a hoax photograph. And then in 1993, some people, some experts took a good look at the photo and um, really did start to cast doubt on it. They thought that the ripples around the edge of the monster, which in the cropped up version, you know, c- kind of looked like they could be at making large waves when you actually had a proper look at the photograph. They had the characteristics more of small ripples. Um and when you look at the 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 full zoomed out the the full photograph and and fact photographs I think there were two but there was only one that was ever used because the other one I'm not quite sure wasn't as wasn't as good a picture or something but one of them seemed to show um, the, the, there was a little sort of dot at one point in the photograph which they could analyze and see wasn't a speck or an artifact or something it was something that was actually in the photo and it almost looked like it was something that had been towing this model and and could possibly be seen to be causing some of the ripples so they so so this study basically said you know we think this photo is 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 a bit of a hoax um, and then not long after that, in 1994, Christian Sperling, the son-in-law, admitted publicly that indeed it was a hoax. And um, then in 1999, the book Nessie, The Surgeon's Photograph Exposed by David S. Martin and Alastair Boyd. Did you see, did you, did you see what they did there? The photograph exposed? Exposure. Yeah, yeah. d- double meaning. Exposure. Mm. Um, yeah, so, so then they, they published a fairly detailed book, presumably having interviewed Mr. Sperling and what have you, that went through the history and the, the details and exactly why it was a fake. But um, so, th- so there you go. I think a lot of people, I mean, that was the photo, obviously, good old Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. That was always front and center on on some of the credits. Um, captured no, I the world's believe, attention. I believe some, some of the work they did back in 1993 
was actually trying to recreate the photo. So people went to using the larger photo, found the kind of va- vantage point that with a camera of that time, use, uh, you'd be able to work out exactly where it was. And then they would just take various scale mo- models going, well, actually, how big does this thing actually need to be? And that was part of the deciding proof mm-hmm. of going, actually... If this is meant to be a big creature, this photo does not show it because the model, the model itself they used is actually quite tiny. Yeah, no, not very big at all. But there you go. So whatever, whatever you think of it, it's definitely a conspiracy. So we're allowed to be talking about it. And frankly, that's all I have to say about the Loch Ness monster. Except there is a link mm-hmm. to Sherlock Holmes. Is there? Did he? So well, no. So there's the film, the Seventh Percent Solution, which is a a film about a non-canonical story of Holmes investigating a crime. The reference, of course, is to the cocaine solution. Solution of cocaine, yeah. yes. And part of the plot of the Seventh Percent Solution is the faking of Nessie on Loch Ness. And so they built a kind of fake Nessie along the lines of the Sturgeon's photo. They put it out on the lake. They they filmed it. And then many years later, that prop was found at the bottom of the lake. And people thought they'd found the prop associated with the Sturgeon's photo. But of course, it turned out actually they'd found the prop associated with the film. But that also, in part, then led to a new reinvestigation because we're going, oh, yeah, we've actually seen in the moving pictures how you would fake the Loch Ness monster. And it looked pretty convincing in that film. We should probably go back and have another look at that photo again. So Sherlock Holmes inadvertently solved the case, which is kind of ironic, given that Arthur Conan Doyle died believing that the Cotillon theories were very, very real, and Mm. that he could speak to his dead mother. Mm. Funny fellow. So, I think that... He he wrote a book after death, you know. Was was these one of those ones dictated to a psychic? Yes, and it ended up being Mm. a fairly interesting legal case, because the Doyle estate when this book came out, went, well, if this book is written by Arthur Conan Doyle, then it belongs to us. And the author, sorry, the spirit medium who Mm. took down dear Uncle Arthur's words or Daddy Arthur's words, uh, really can't claim anything other than being a secretary. So we should deserve all the royalties from, Mm. from, from this book. And so there was a legal case about who the author of the book was, and the court sided with the Doyle estate going, well, look, if the person who channeled Arthur Conan Doyle really does claim all she was doing was typing out what he told her, then she's not an author and can't make any... So, yeah, an interesting legal proof of life after death, or at least authorship after death. So... I think that's us done for this week. Uh, But it's not, of course, because after we stop this, first I'm going to turn the fan back on again and cool myself down, So, uh, uh, at least to the point... Josh, are you going to strip naked for the the bonus bonus episode? Only you will know. 
but anyway, uh, we we are we're going to uh, record a bonus episode. There's no doubt about that. We're going to talk about a bunch of mysterious things. We'll talk about the protest that's been going on down south. What else will we talk about? Do you think? Well, we're going to talk about good old Havana Sound because there's more information about that Havana syndrome. Uh, we'll have a little bit of an update as to Prince Andrew's legal travails over good old Jeffrey Epstein and his coterie of underage girls. We've got a a journal of lost Templar secrets, which can be easily bought from Etsy. And of course, the good old debate as to whether the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is going to stay on Spotify, given that we should follow Neil Young's lead. We've got some stats and some commentary on that as well. Mm. So if you'd like to hear about all of that and you're not currently a patron, then just be one. We, we already told you at the start how it, it's the perfect mix of encouraging and also infuriating. Um, you could do that by going yeah. to patreon.com and signing Being yourself Being a patron up. of the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is basically the ability to edge both Josh and myself. You always have to bring it down, don't you? Honestly, uh, if you don't want to be a pay, if you don't want to, if you don't want to in any way even tacitly support the the, the torrent of filth that regularly spews from Doctor Dentist's mouth, uh, you don't don't feel like you have to. The fact that you've listened all the way to the end of this episode is quite enough for us. Thank you. Um, and I believe that's everything we have to say. So before uh, I collapse into some sort of coma, I'm just going to bring things to a close in the usual method of saying goodbye. I'm going to say elementary, my dear Edison. Elementary. Sherlock Holmes n- n- never said that, but curious enough, Captain Kirk from Star Trek did. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. MRX Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, Soylent Green is Meeple's. <laughs>